We today are going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 26. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there with me, 1 Samuel chapter 26. Before we begin, let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of Samuel and David and your prophets, Lord God, that have recorded your word, that um, that are instructing us, Lord, in not only how faithful you are, but it, what is required of us to be faithful to you. We thank you for the gospel and the goodness of Jesus Christ, his compassion, Lord, in covering the chasm that separated us from you, making us one with himself and carrying us, Lord, into heaven with him. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us before your presence now, instructing us and encouraging us. Lord God, I pray that we would all be convicted and comforted in ex- precisely the way that we each need We pray all these things in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, we've been on a bit of a stent here through chapter 24 to 26. And what they are about are about David avoiding those actions that would put his throne at risk. In the oasis of En Gedi, where he is in the wilderness, a sort of garden, a sort of Eden, David is thrice tempted to grasp forbidden fruit, just as his son, our Lord Jesus, was thrice tempted to grasp forbidden fruit. The temptation of David in this wilderness is precisely like the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, like Adam's temptation in the wilderness. David is being pursued throughout these, throughout these chapters, and this is typologically significant to all of us because we are all of us being pursued. Now, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, we, we read what God says to Cain. He says this, sin is crouching at the door, Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So every day when you walk out the the door of your bedroom, when you walk out the front door, sin is crouching there and desires to dominate you, desires to make you submit to its will. The Apostle Peter says in chapter 5, verses 8 through 10 of his first epistle, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now what I want to talk about is the space. The space between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, and after you have suffered a little while. Now, the thing that troubles most of us is what does he mean by a little while? (laughs) The, The creator of the universe, to him a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And so when he says a little while, it makes me nervous. And, and that space, that space between the need and the deliverance, the promise and the fulfillment, is what this story today is about. It's what the authors or the compilers of the Deuteronomic, Deuteronomistic history want us to consider, the space between. Throughout chapters 19 to 28, it's a game of cat and mouse, a game of seeking. Abigail says in twenty-five twenty-nine, men rise up to pursue you and seek your life. That's what she says to David. Men are pursuing you. They are seeking your life. 
Abigail makes explicit the connection between seekers after David and fools cursed to die in chapter 25, verse 26. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil uh, to my Lord be as Nabal, which was her husband. May those who seek after you, David, be like Nabal. Now, it does not seem like the space between our pursuers and us is often very large. It sometimes seems, however, that the space between us and God is immense. And what we have is it backwards. No matter how close our pursuers seem, they are much further from us than we realize. And no matter how far God seems, he is much nearer than we realize. One of the twists of chapter 26 is that David begins to hunt Saul. He reverses the story. And in this, typologically, we see that God is hunting Saul, prowling patiently, waiting to strike. But like his God, David stays his hand for the sake of love and mercy and grace, for blessing. In chapters 24 and 26, David had an opportunity to kill Saul, to rid us all of this man who is awful, this tyrant. But in both, his, his men urged him to do so. But he refused. In both chapters, David took a token from Saul, which later served as proof of his innocence. In both, David refused to flee, but chose to confront Saul. In both, Saul repented. And the simple question is, why not just get it done? Why this space? You were promised the throne. The throne is is there for your taking, and you don't do it. Why? And it's exactly the kind of question that we ask God. You said you were going to get rid of Saul. Why are you waiting? Why all this space? Why this time between you're saying you're going to do it and you're doing it? The similarities in chapters 24 and 26, which are very, very stark, are so obvious that the differences actually become the significant thing. So what we're going to look at is not so much what's the same, but what's different about these two stories. Because in both stories, David Hunt... uh, Saul is hunting David. In both stories, David has an opportunity to kill Saul. He's, he's actually like, encouraged to do so. And in both stories, he takes a token showing his innocence. And so some people have thought, well, this is really just one story that somehow got garbled and, and it became two stories. But that, that is always nonsense, right? There's a, there's a sandwich here. You've got David try, um, having the opportunity to kill Saul and refusing. Then he tries to kill Nabal, and he stopped. And then now again, he, he has an opportunity to kill Saul, and he doesn't. And, and the, the stories work together to give us a deep understanding, a, deeper, a much deeper understanding, which we're going to see David himself gets from these stories. Now, there's a few details I want you to watch out for as we proceed. The passage consists of four speeches by David, which carry most of the theological freight, and they are full of rhetorical questions intended not so much for Saul, but for you. In these chapters, there's all kinds of rhetorical questions. And we often think, man, these characters are having a dialogue. And that's not actually what's supposed to be happening. What's happening is God is asking you the rhetorical question. And he's doing it through these characters. And when you stop and you think about the rhetorical question and what the answer is, you learn something about God, about yourself, and about this massive space between our need and the deliverance that God gives us. The space between righteousness and unrighteousness, life and death, light and dark. Observe, too, that Saul's spear is mentioned at least once in each of the three main sections. In all, there are six references to Saul's spear, and it becomes the dominant symbol of the passage. But what does it mean? What does the spear mean? 
Now let us turn to chapter 26. Um, I'm going to do a little paraphrasing uh, in this part because there's a lot of repetition. Not all of the details are pertinent to us today. So this is what it says in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 26. The Ziphites came to Saul, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Achilla, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after, he sent out spies. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay. With Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, Saul was lying while the army was encamped around him. Then David, to Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zariah, said, Who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, for I will not strike him twice. A little professional bragging there. I won't need to stab him more than once, David. Now, the Ziphites have informed on David again. So Saul has come stalking David again. Saul still has 3,000 hand-picked men. David still has 600. Nevertheless, David is not afraid to go and spy out the land himself. His base is in the wilderness, but he doesn't wait for Saul to find him. He goes looking for Saul. Now, right there... (laughs) is a principle that we should learn a little something from. There, there comes a point where we are stocked enough, and it's time to do a little stocking of our own. There is a point where we are hunted, and, and it, that must cease, and we ourselves must become the hunters. If our Christian faith is always one of being pursued, there are problems. Now, if your Christian life is always one of you pursuing the enemy, <laughs> there's also problems. We've talked about this before. There is a time to stand, and there is a time to run. Right? Some battles in history have been uh, won by what they call an organized retreat. An organized retreat has turned a route into a victory more than one time. And that's what we've seen David do repeatedly. But now, all of a sudden, when he's greatly outnumbered, why is it he's going to go on the offensive? Now, there's a few things that we need to think about. One of them is that in the book of Numbers... The beginning chapters describes the wilderness camp of Israel, how it's organized, and it's organized around the tabernacle. So the divine king of Israel, the Lord God, was enthroned above the cherubim in the center of the camp, in the tabernacle, and all around him was the tribes of Israel. Now Saul has arranged his camp in a similar way. The Lord's anointed, rather than Yahweh himself, is at the center. These organizational similarities symbolize what is at stake in this episode. Saul was Yahweh's anointed, so like the Lord's tent, Saul's person is sacrosanct. You are not allowed to go to the center of the camp, into the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies. You are not allowed to go into the center of this camp and touch the Lord's anointed. So this is how they're traveling around. This is who Saul thinks he is. David was already anointed and knew that he would someday be in Saul's position in the circle of the camp. This is also a continuation of the Edenic motif because David is being tempted here to seize the forbidden fruit. Is he going to go into the garden of Israel and is he going to take something from the center of the camp that belongs to God and not him? 
It's the same story again, just like it's been shadows of it in all three chapters so far. The spear at, at the head of Saul is meant to be for his protection. But in the hands of Abishai, it would have certainly killed him. Abishai prides himself on his professionalism as a soldier. He says, I'll only need to strike him once. One blow is all I need. Now, Abishai may have gathered that they are on a commando raid, a blitzkrieg of terror of sorts, to dispose of Saul and Abner. But in any case, the opportunity was too good to pass up. Abishai whispers to David, now, here's your moment. Do it. He's even left us a spear. (laughs) Get him. But David's answer is quick and to the point. 1 Samuel chapter 26, verses 9 through 12. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for you, who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head in the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear in the the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. Now man, no man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. So what justifies his actions, David's actions? This seems like a bold and a bit of a crazy plan. But what justifies it is the fact that it turns out God is the one who had put them all to sleep and they would not wake up. David made the the right bold decision at at exactly the right time and what we find out is that the Lord is with him. David explains, Yahweh himself will strike down this man. The Lord will raise his hand against him, and so I will not. David demonstrates the same patience and restraint from chapter 24, but it's sanctified, it's matured. It's a deeper patience, a more informed restraint. He knows from chapter 25, verse 38, that Yahweh struck down Nabal. So he already knew it was not good to kill the king's anointed, and now he's like, listen, now I definitely know that I don't need to worry about my enemies because God will take care of it. God will do the deed himself, rather, right? And he gives all kinds of options. Who knows what he's going to do? But he, the Lord, is going to do something against Saul. There are endless possibilities. The important thing is that Yahweh will handle Saul's destiny, so it's not in David's hands. He doesn't have to be in control of what happens here. David argues, again, that the person of the king is sacrosanct. No one will be able to accuse David of having murdered Saul in order to grasp the throne. He's not Adam. He's like Jesus, who in the wilderness is offered the kingdom, and he doesn't take it. He waits. Now, is the space between him being promised the kingdom and the fulfillment of the kingdom getting longer and longer and longer? Now, what happens when the space between the promises that God gives you and the fulfillment of the promises gets longer and longer and longer? Are you as patient as David? Right? Or are you tempted to grasp? Are you as patient as David, or are you tempted to start taking control of events in your own hands? Now, I want to point out something here. David doesn't know what God is going to do. He has no idea. He knows that he's going, however, to do something. And so what he doesn't, con- right? he's not as concerned about that as he's concerned with his own obedience. 
He could imagine diverse ways in which Yahweh would, would take Saul out and would restore the kingdom to David, but there was something he did know, right? He didn't know what God was going to do, but there was something that he did know. And what he did know was how to be obedient in the situation that he was in. Now, this is very, very helpful to us. How many of us have any idea what's coming? Okay, yes, none of us. Thank you, everyone. You guys passed the first theological test. We have no idea. I myself say, I pontificate all the time about what I think is going to happen. I hear lots, lots of very, like people believe certain things are coming and certain things are going to happen as if they're looking into a crystal ball, as if they had gone into the future in the DeLorean and have come back and to tell us about it. People are very certain about what's going to happen. And, and, and this is the first thing we need to repent of. We have no idea what's going, to be hap- what's going to happen. We don't, right? A giant meteor could fall out of the sky and America could disappear in an instant. Who knows, right? Anywhere from that extreme idea all the way down to what? Right? Fill in the blank. Anything can happen. We don't know because we're not in charge. The p- important thing is, what does obedience look like tomorrow morning? I have no idea what's going to change between today and next Friday. But I, but I can instruct you, I can give you advice as to what your obedience in, that, in any given particular day looks like. And what we need to do is, start, is stop worrying so much about what God is going to do because we're not God and he's got it and we need to trust him even though the space between the madness and the, the deliverance of the madness seems like it's going to go on forever. What we need to focus more on is what our obedience looks like in the space between. The circumstances that God allows baffle us, but God's will is sufficiently clear. It's very clear. We wait for God's providence, but we already have God's law, and that should be all that we need in the circumstances we are in. Now, what are we to do? This is what I say. Review the Ten Commandments. Review the book of Proverbs. Review the Psalms as often as you can. The creation ordinances. The Sermon on the Mount. The book of James and Hebrews. Read Acts. Right? How often does the space between deliverance and the need, right, does it look immense in the book of Acts? And yet what happens again and again and again in the book of Acts? Read the old stories. You don't know the future, you, but you can know what obedience looks like. Right? We have got to stop taking the bait to react to everything. God doesn't want, right? We're, we're not a hit squad. We're not, we're, we're not the Supreme Court. I know most of us would love to be the Supreme Court, but we're not the Supreme Court, right? I can't get into the White House. Nobody would let me. (laughs) I don't have the credentials. I don't know anything about what's going on in there. I think I know, but I don't. You know what I do know is that I have a wife and six children. I have a job. I have a ministry. I have neighbors. I I have cars to take care of and, and bills to pay. And I've got a lot of things, so many things, that if I actually sat down and added them up, I'm pretty busy. God can do his thing. I'm going to just go over here in my corner and worry about my corner. It's, it's very difficult for us. But God didn't say, here you are, at, at, you come out of the baptismal fount, and here's the grace you're going to need to get you through to the end. No, he says what? I will give you grace sufficient for the day. And that's it. Now, do you need grace in order to be obedient today? Yes. And that's all you're promised. That space is very small. Now, returning to the text, Saul's spear stood beside his head, stuck in the ground. Now, this is what I want to know, right? Why is a guy who's got 3,000 handpicked soldiers and a bodyguard need to sleep with a spear at his head? 
How paranoid is Saul at this point? What, what is his trust in? Now, you know, I, I, I like to use myself as an example from time to time. But before I was a Christian, right, I grew up in, in middle-class America. I went to Mercer Island High School, for goodness sakes. They had a golf team and a lacrosse team. And I, in my late teens and early 20s, slept with a loaded pistol under my pillow. Now, if, if I could explain at those days all of the things that I was afraid of. But, but why? Why was I so afraid? What did I really have to be afraid of? You know how many house, houses got broken in in my neighborhood when I was growing up? None. Why? Because there was a cop who lived on the block. He was my dad. And yet I understand this. Unbelievers are so paranoid. Unbelievers are pursued to the point where they feel like they've got to sleep with a spear by their side because they, they have no faith. They have no trust. They are fearful to the utmost. It's very sad to me that we find Saul, and he's so paranoid that even in the midst of all of, all of this security that God can provide, he has none. Right? Now, if you look around the world... Can you see the world piling security upon security, and yet they're more fearful than ever? The whole world is sleeping with a gun under the pillow because they're terrified. And when we see it, right, when we see it, we should know, know it for what it is. Look at, look at these people. There is no security in this world that is sufficient enough for what these people fear. And so what do they need? They need to be told, listen, that, that spear is going to do you no good. That's what God wants them to know. God wants Saul to know the spear is no good. It doesn't help you. The army doesn't help you. Your, your bodyguard, Abner, doesn't help you. And so David takes it. Now, it's stuck there in the, in the ground by his head, in, in one way foreshadowing his eventual destruction because he will have his head cut off. The spear is also the symbol of his oppression. He threw it several times at both his son and David, trying to kill them. The spear was in the hand of Goliath. The spear is in the hand of the kings of the earth. They are people who rule by the spear. And here is Saul, and the symbol of his oppression, the symbol of his tyranny, is the fear itself. And he can't even go to sleep without it nearby. And so David takes it. He takes away the symbol of his oppression. He takes away the symbol of his fear. And this is the good news that David brings to the camp of Saul. Now, how did they get unhindered access? How did they get in here? How did they crawl through 3,000 men up to the very place where the king was sleeping? The narrator explains, no one saw, knew, or roused at all because a deep sleep from Yahweh had fallen on them. Now, the word that they use for deep sleep is interesting. You know the only other place it's used? It's Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. The deep sleep that fell on Adam when God took Eve from his side and made the first woman. Because what's at stake here in the Garden of Eden is who is Saul's helper? He's alone. He's utterly alone. The 3,000 men, the bodyguard, the spirit, it's all meaningless. He is utterly alone to face the darkness. And all by himself, he needs a helper. And who is his helper? The issue in this passage is who is the helper of Saul? Is it Abner? Is it the army? Is it the spear? Or is it David, the Lord's anointed? Now, Abner's position as Saul's right-hand man is important for understanding the drama of this whole incident. Sometime before, David had been rising in Saul's service and was known to be the heir apparent to the throne. He, therefore, would have been in command of the military, and that position has been filled by Abner. 
Their parallel between Abner and David is an important feature of the story, as we will see in the next section, because this is it. Who is the proper assistant to Saul? Is it Abner? Is it David? Who is the proper leader of Israel's army? Is it Abner or is it David? We are watching not merely David's daring, but Yahweh's hand at work. He is the one who put everyone to sleep. He is the one that's making a way for David to do this plan. And so this is what, there is no evidence of any kind that David knew. David made a bold plan. David did what he thought was right through sanctified wisdom. And it turns out God was with him. Now, what does that do for our faith? Right? Do you see a bold plan that is necessary in these days that we're in? and you're not really sure. And stories like this exist, that even when we don't know it, the Lord God is going before us, and if he doesn't, right, there's no hope for us. But if he does, we can crawl through an army of 3,000 men and not get caught. That gives me a great deal of confidence in some of the things that I might be trying. Don't worry, I'm not going to be crawling through armies of 3,000 men yet. (laughs) The day may come. We are watching not merely David's daring, but Yahweh's hand. Saul is helpless because Yahweh has made him so. If the Lord is not with you, there is no hope for you. Yahweh tends to be the kind of God who reaches out his tired, to his tired and wearied servants amid their discouragements, granting them some small display that he is with them. And that's what this is. Don't forget me, David. I'm with you. Now, David counted on the Lord's assistant, and he was not disappointed. He received it. And now he's got the spear, and he's got the water jug, and he's crept away. And this is what happens next. Chapter 26, verses 13 to 20. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army, to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. And Saul recognized David's voice and said, is this your voice, my son, David? And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my... Let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. David escapes to higher and safer ground and calls out to them. And the first person he calls out to is Abner. Abner, staggering, attempting to collect his wits, realizes that it's David. He has proven to be a shoddy bodyguard. Indeed, all of them have. The you becomes plural in in verse 16. He's talking to the entire army of Israel. You all ought to be lined up against the wall and shot. And in most militaries throughout history, if you fall asleep on watch, you will be shot. And, and I would argue that you ought to be. David, is, is, this is biblical wisdom. If you're falling asleep on the job opposed to protecting the king, you ought to be killed. And so where, where is Saul's help? This is who you've got. You've got 3,000 army that you put so much pride in. You're pride in your spear, pride in Abner. And what are they? Worthless. 
His derision of Saul is only the beginning. David challenges Abner with a question. Who watched over the king? And the answer was not Abner, but David. Who was the helper suited suited to Saul? Not Abner, but David. One needn't be fully awake to figure this out. For all of his protection, Saul is utterly defenseless. And his throne, his power, the symbol of his power has been taken away. He is a feckless thug, a worthless, nobody tyrant who has nothing, has no protection. And I'm going to say it again. Why not at this point just, get, just make it end already? Why are we going to let this guy live? David's disarming of Saul is a clear foreshadowing of what's coming. His authority is gone. His power is gone. His kingdom is gone. It was a sign for Saul, but it was also a sign for David. It was a sign for everyone following David. The Lord is with David and not Saul. And the space between those two things is infinite. The space between those two things is all the difference. David points out Saul's irrational pursuit of David by asking, what, what have I done? Now, this is, you have to be careful here, because David is, in one sense, an innocent man. Now, uh, not, no one is innocent before God. We understand this. We're good Calvinists. But there is such a thing as being legally, um, legally upright. He's saying, what laws have I actually broken? He's not saying, have I never sinned? He's saying, what, what have I actually done? He's done nothing. He's an innocent man. And he's being pursued by the magistrate of the land for reasons of wickedness and evil and tyranny. Now, he says, this might be God who has done this to me. Now, this is something we're going to see in David again and again and again and again, and it's extremely important for us. It's important for our wives and for our children and for our community to see us responding in this way. I'm not totally sure this isn't God against me, is what David says. Now, in one sense, he's saying how innocent he is. In another way, he's saying, listen, it might actually be God who's doing this. Because he understands he's a good Calvinist, too. He understands that he's not perfectly innocent, is he? He understands that there actually might be something he's done, and this is actual just punishment. He's admitting that there's a limit to what he knows. But he says, listen, one way or the other, okay, one way or the other, whether it's God who did it or... um, just evil advisors that you have, this can't carry on. It can't carry on. So I either got to make a sacrifice and make him, let's do some restitution, let's heal this relationship, or I got to go out of the land. And that's what he's talking about. He's saying, you're driven me now to worship other gods. Now, Now, that seems like a logical leap, doesn't it? How are you pursuing me to the point where I'm having to go and worship other gods? His argument is that he's being driven from the land. Therefore, he's being driven from where Yahweh lives. Yahweh is not in India. Yahweh is not in Japan. Yahweh is not in North America at the moment. Yahweh has an address, which is just typologically telling us that the Lord God is going to have an address, Nazareth. God has an address, and and David understands he's not like us enlightened American Christians who are like, it doesn't really matter where you are where you worship God, right? If you have a Bible all by yourself and a little screen, then you have church. And David's like, listen, if I'm not with the people of God, I'm not with God, right? And, and, and this is, is something that all of us need to understand, this idea of live streaming church, church in, uh, scattered about, and because we have these little screens now, we're all together. And David is saying, listen, if I'm not with the people of God, I'm not with God, and I'm dead, and I'm serving other gods in other lands, 
He takes the presence of God, the presence of his sanctuary, the presence of his priests, the presence of the sacraments very, very seriously. Now, this is something that has a long-standing tradition in the church that we mock. We mock this idea when we find it in the Bible because we're very enlightened, right? Jesus said we're, spirit, we're worshiping now in spirit and truth. It does not matter where you go. You know, if you want to go out on a hilltop and worship Jesus because that's where you found him, amen, because he's everywhere. And theologically, we're like, wait a minute, he is everywhere. But is that, is that what worship is? God's omnipresence is not the same thing as worship. Worship is going with the people of God to the presence of God, worshiping him and seeing his face. Psalm 63, 2 says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. He knows when he goes in the sanctuary, he's not just in some building in Israel. He's before the very face of God, and he sees God's face. Now, this idea goes all the way down. Jesus is confronted with it by the woman by the well, who says in John four twenty, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, what am I saying and what am I not saying? Okay, if we want to actually worship God, we do not have to all get on a, on a 747 and head to Israel and find where the temple was. But, but there is a connection now, right? Because God is now spreading out of Israel to the entire world. So the whole world is his. And wherever two or three are gathered together, there the Lord is. So the, the worship, true Christian worship, happens when the people of God gather in the throne room of God to worship God and see his face. Okay? That does not mean that God isn't everywhere. It just means that he is with his people on Sunday mornings in church in a special way. And David could teach a lot of us about this kind of thing because we take what we have for granted. We think we can do without it. And how are we doing without it? How is the Christian church in the United States doing without it? How is the church in, in the world doing without face-to-face, side-by-side, fellowship, worship? This is how David feels. For him, it's like death. For him, it's like idolatry to be away from God's sanctuary, God's priests, God's sacraments. So he's been quite severe with Saul. And he ought to be. And Saul, who was saying, oh, my son, my son. David didn't hear any of that. He's over all that. But previously, he called him Saul, my father. Now he just says, oh, Lord, my king. He's very formal because the love is gone. There is no trust here. There's no love here. There's, and, and the respect is, is mere formality. But Saul is touched. And this is what he has to say in verses 21 to 24. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man of his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Saul can save his breath. Now, some of us may think this is a little harsh, a little blunt. After all, Saul really sounds sincere, doesn't he? Isn't this the kind of public profession of, of, of sin that we'd actually want? He, he calls himself a Nabal. 
But David understands the Bible better than Saul does. David understands the Bible better than we do. He understands 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. David can tell the difference between true repentance and worldly grief. Right? Because generally, when it comes to sin, are, do you truly hate the sin? Are you truly sad that you have offended God? Or are you sad that you got caught? Now, it's easy, right? you ask these questions of children. If they're honest, they'll be like, really, I'm just kind of mad you found me. Right? But it, there's no way adults do this. Right? So I'm not, I don't even want to arm you with this to be like, now let's go running around and finding who's really repenting and who's not, who's just full of worldly grief. Please don't do that. I'm saying you may not actually be repenting like you think you do. Right? Even calling himself a fool. Calling him, saying he, he says, I acted foolishly. You know what repentant people do? They say, I lied. I committed adultery. I coveted. I stole. I bore false witness. I murdered. That's what you say. You call your sin what God calls it. That's a, it's a good test as to whether you're really repenting or not. He just says, oh, I did, I did, I did foolishly. Right? And with, with my kids, this is always what I make them do when they apologize. They're like, I'm sorry for being a jerk. And I'm like, you know, there's actually nowhere in the Bible that says you're not supposed to be a jerk. In fact, there's some places that you're supposed to be a jerk. We can argue about that later. I look at my kid and I say, tell him what you did. Right? I hated you in my heart. I murdered you in my heart. I called you a fool in my heart. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. And it's, right? it's amazing when you want them to do it, suddenly they won't do it. <laughs> you're like, well, I thought you were sorry, though. I thought you were grief. The grief. The lesson here is, can you tell the difference between repentance unto life, which is what God requires, calling your sin by what he calls it, truly hating it, truly repenting of it, or in your own life, is it simply sorrow and grief worldly that leads to death? Now, another little thing that's going on here. This is the second time that David has stood before Saul, the chief magistrate in the land, and the second time that Saul admits guilt and concedes David's innocence. Several details of this conversation are reminiscent of Samuel's confrontation of Saul back in chapter 13. Samuel said that Saul had played the fool and failed to guard the commandment of Yahweh. That's what Samuel said to him. And now this is what Saul is saying of himself. In chapter 26, David charged Abner with a failure to guard the king, Saul admits he is a fool. In short, this whole incident replaces the prediction that Saul would be deprived of the kingdom. This is important here right at the end as we turn to the close. There's an echo here of the fact that Saul, you got to go. Saul, we're taking the kingdom. Saul, you are unfaithful. In the last verse of this chapter, it says this. Then Saul said to David, blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. They go in two different directions. David doesn't buy it. Right? Just because Saul has acted foolishly doesn't mean now David should act foolishly and trust him again. David continues his wanderings. Saul goes back to his court. David went on his way. Saul returns to his place. It's very matter of fact. And the space between David and Saul is infinite. It is the same space between life and death, blessing and cursing, light and darkness. They're as far from one another as the east is from the west. Now, let's think about this on a, let's go meta now on this whole story. <laughs> well over half of the book of 1 Samuel finds Saul sitting amongst the ashes of his kingship. 
Right? He looks like Job at this point. And I, I, I feel, this is how I feel honestly, honestly. I feel like Job's wife. I'm just like, dude, curse God and die already. Please. This book is getting long. Okay? And I got Advent coming up to preach, and you just keep hanging on. Like, just curse God already and die. Get over it. Whew. It just goes on and on and on. Now, if you go back, when he first fell and the kingdom was first taken from him, it was over what? It was over Agag, an evil king, who God said, destroy him. And Saul stayed his hand and didn't destroy him. And so God said, listen, now I'm definitely taking the kingdom from you. And now here we have God who's not killing an evil king. Isn't this exactly the same thing that God was angry at Saul for doing? Now, and, and what this whole thing is about, there's this super deep puzzle in the text. Saul's reign, in the eyes of the authors of the Deuteronomistic history, is a prefiguring image of the kingship itself, right? There's this huge delay. There's this huge space between God says, I'm going to destroy you, I'm going to take your kingship, you're thrown away, and his actually doing it. There's this huge space, and, and there is a mystery. Why? Why is there this delay? And, and what we see here is the whole story of the throne of Israel. Because way back in chapter 8, they rejected God as king. They're like, nope, we don't want you. We want a king like the nations. And God says, you know, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me, and I'm done with it. And yet, it takes from chapter 8 all the way to the exile, this massive delay before God does anything about it. He's like, but you know what, guys? Let me see you try. Right, Saul? Let's get out there and let's see what you can, let's get in the game and see if you can score some goals. Oh, look at you. Nope, you're dead. Okay, David, how about you, buddy? Let's get, you get in the game now. And then he goes and he puts like one player after another into the game and and they just keep, right? Satan runs up the score pretty high. And there's this huge delay. And you see in that what you see here. Why? Why are you taking so long to just put these people in their place? Why are you letting them go out there and making fools of themselves again and again and again? Now, why was this book written? It was written for exiles. And there the exiles sit, and they have this promise that if you return to the Lord, he will return to you, and he will restore you. And there's this space between the promise and the realization. And the Deuteronomic, I keep trying to say it, Deuteronomistic historians are like, yes, this space between is the story of the Bible. God says he's going to do something, and then there's a long, long time, a huge space before he does it. And the exiles are like, man... Can't we just go back to the land already? And then, hey, I just want to remind you guys how you got here. You know how you got here, exiles, was a long disobedience in the same direction in which God also stayed his hand. That's how you got here. And now you just want us to flip, you you want God to flip the switch? You think he's now, right? (laughs) He's going to just turn it over and take you back to the land and put everybody back in their houses and it's all going to be good? Like, let me explain to you how God works. He says something in chapter 8, and nine books later, he's going to do it. Now, why? Right? And in, in, in this, you see the history of man, the history of all mankind. Adam falls out of the tree, breaks himself. God says in the very next verse, okay, don't worry, I'm going to save you. And then there's this space of how much time. There's this space full of fool after fool that we think is going to go in there and save us. He's going to go in there and win the game. And again and again and again, what do we see? The utter failure of mankind. The utter failure of human kings. The utter failure of human saviors. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 20, it says, Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. He says, back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, all the way back then, if you leave me, I will leave you. But does he ever really leave them? No, he's going to make them feel like he's left them. He's going to allow this massive space between the promise and the fulfillment, between light and dark, between life and death. And what does he want in the space between? He wants you to be obedient. What he wants you to see, you too, just like he's shown in human history, just like he showed with all the kings and all the exiles, that if left to ourselves, where we end up every single time is rejection and cursing in exile. And if you don't believe me, go try it. Go and try to save yourself. Go and try to be the the savior of your wife, the savior of your children, the savior of this this whole people, America. Do it. And, and because we've, there is a space between what we can do and what God can do, between ourselves and God, there is an infinite chasm. And he wants us to understand that there is. Because he wants us to understand exactly how big the chasm is, how big the space is between us that he himself has filled. That's what this whole story is about. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. It's hidden his face. It's not taken his face away. It's hidden his face. And we need stories like this because we want deliverance now. We want the conclusion now. We want the answer now. We want deliverance now. And he's like, no, there's a huge space. Because I need you to know that there is a huge space between you and me. But listen, it feels infinite, but it's not, because it's not even as long as my arm, the space between us and God. The space between promise and fulfillment is as if it is an hour in his mind. And what he wants us to do is see in that space that he comes to us, that he provides for us, that he leads us in in the darkness, that he leads us in the shadow of death, that he himself is working and working and working. How do they fall asleep? The Lord made them fall asleep. Who's going to take care of Saul? God's going to take care of Saul. What does he want of you in the space between? Obedience. Seeing no one able to make intercession for the fallen state of man, God promises that his own arm will do it. And and, and (laughs) he's not going to do it according to your time frame. He will cross the space between himself and us. In Isaiah, God arms himself for war in verse 17. That's what we had read for us this morning. And, and this is the hope. This is the promise. Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, who nailed what to the cross? Who nailed what? Did we nail him, or did he nail the gap? Did he nail the space between? Did he nail the enemies of God? They thought they were nailing him to the cross. He was nailing the enemies to the cross. And Adam, somewhere, was like, oh, man, that has, it's as if it didn't take any time at all. 
Look at that. Look at, how, look at the story he told in the middle. Look at this, this space between. He reached down out of heaven, and he nailed all of our enemies to the wall, to the cross, and dealt with all of them. And so what does that leave us with, right? <laughs> the space between your birth and your death is nothing compared to the space between you and God. The space between the promise and the fulfillment is nothing compared to the space between you and God. And if he crossed over that space to save you, if he crossed over that space to give you victory in Jesus Christ, right? He, he united you to himself so that now, in, tr- in reality, there is no space between you and God. And so now what you have to do is you have to walk around believing that. You have to walk around believing, you know what? I am not God. I can't fill this space. He will. And all it requires of me now is to be obedient. That's it. That's all. <laughs> Don't take the forbidden fruit. Don't take control of it yourself. Don't take things into your own hands. Trust him, right? By believing him, this is how he fulfills all the things that he has promised us. And what we need to do is understand that the space between what, what, right, what we want to have happen and it happening is going to be infinite. And, and in that space, what you need to focus on is him because he crosses it. He fills the gap. He draws you near. He is the one fighting for you. He is the one in who we have victory. He is the one who, who is our solace. He is the one who is the purpose in our lives. He is the one that we are obeying. And if we focus more on that, this, you know how big the space gets between us and him? Right? That's the greater space that we don't need to be worried about. That's the one that really matters. And in, in, in Jesus Christ, we find out that it, there's no space at all. And that's our hope. And that's our strength to go out and do the things that he has called us to do. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your prophets. We thank you, Lord, for David and for Saul. We thank you, Lord, that this space between us that we created, that you crossed the chasm, Lord, that you came to us, that you delivered us, that you have drawn us into yourself, that you have made made us one with yourself. No matter how large the space is between our need and its fulfillment, we know the, the most important space is the one between you and us, and it is nothing. It is It does not exist. We are in you, and we know, Lord, that you are for us. And I pray that we would go from here strengthened and encouraged and emboldened by that. And amen.